when you think about the concept of farming, it's a very Newtonian approach and it seeks this conceptual understanding. And one of the ways that I've learned in farming in the past, it's called a, a biodynamic, which is more of a Gertian approach. And it seeks insight into the archetypal aspect of the plant. And when we think about the cosmic rhythms, you know, connecting the earth to the stars, you think about the farmer's almanac, you think about all of these aspects that are related to what are the essential principles of farming in a way that's going to produce uh, nutrient-dense food and a better future for humanity. The farmer is a human agent of creative thinking and basically acting at, in these endeavors with all the varied forces that they're dealing with, with nature, uh, with where the seeds are coming from, with where their raw materials are coming from. But ultimately, in, at the end of the day, they're trying to supply livelihood for their family, livelihood for their consumers. And the full potential of this is all surrounded. And a lot of us have forgotten this in taste, nutrition, the beauty or presence of your food and the fragrance. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Farm to Table Talk will cover so many different things, all the way from the farm to the table, obviously. That's how we got that name. But there's so much to cover. And, and I'm really fortunate today because I have a guest that covers a lot of that territory. And he's been involved in everything from connecting with farmers, connecting to companies that are taking products all the way through to the consumers, to the consumers, to production practices. It's just a lot. Dr. Chris Doherty. And Christopher, I really want to welcome you to Farm to Table Talk. And I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation, Chris, because you just had your hands on about every part of food and agriculture that I can imagine. Did you start out thinking that I just want to jump in and connect everywhere I can with how my food is grown and how it affects my body and 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 your in in your case, I suppose, some of your patients too? Yeah, I, you know, when I was five years old, I met a man on a bridge. He was a pilot for Pan Am. Uh, he lived in Henry Ford. Is this a true South. story? This is a true story. Okay. Uh, his name is Gordon Bigger. He lived in South Florida. He was the head pilot for Pan Am. Uh, his family bought their home from Henry Ford. His father was the last official homesteader in the state of Florida. He uh, went to school with Hugh Popino and Hugh Popino Sr., in Miami, who wrote The Lost Crops of the Incas and The Underexploited Tropical Fruits, as well as many other things. At that school at the time, they had many people from different countries that were all going to agronomy school at the University of Miami. When he became a pilot, he stayed at first national, then Pan Am. He retired from Delta as a top seat. And he was connected to all of these different farmers around the globe. And he invested in them as well. He brought rubber into Ecuador. He brought chicle into certain areas. He brought industry as he was flying as a pilot. When I met him, he befriended my family. He got me into uh, thinking about what the word Latin means, the root meaning, genus and species, 
cultivars. And he actually, if you go out from Fort Myers to uh, um, uh, Fort Myers Beach, there is a road called Summerlin Road. And those are all tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers, not organic, but they were farms where there was a lot of indigenous and Hispanic people working on those farms. And it was bigger family farms. And he would bring me out there in his cantankerous, cool old Mercedes and give me a belt uh, a belt with a, a pair of shears and a salt shaker on it. And he'd let me work out in the field with these people. And I learned about tomato growing and sand culture and uh, watermelon growing and cucumber growing. He taught me how to tissue culture before I was the age of nine, uh, about 30 different species of orchids and how to air layer plants. And um, anyways, uh, he introduced me to the men that he was went to school with. All of their sons were going organic. And I had my own path that took me down. I almost died of Accutane medication. What is and that? it got me Accutane for acne. Oh, okay, okay. And then I ended up going into the health food stores by a friend in the community. And I went to those uh, health food stores. It totally changed my life. And I quit eating fried foods and words I couldn't read on a package. And the list went on and on. And I ended up uh, out of high school, really excited to get involved in something um, that was uh, related to food. And there was an opportunity to intern on a 175 acre biodynamic and organic farm. I purchased a 19 by 36 military tent and I lived on that farm for two years in the back of the farm and I farmed the vegetables. And I started a distribution company called Georgia Grown where we distributed to all the chefs in downtown Atlanta. Um, as well as marketplaces. And that led to um, uh, me getting my naturopath, mm. working as a new store operations for wild oats. Mm. And then by default, this man that I met on a bridge when I was five years old, many years later called me and said, hey, you're into that organic stuff. Would you like to carry or help these guys? You remember them? And I was like, of course. I made a couple phone calls because I already knew kind of the game from being an NSO at wild oats. One thing led to another. And um, at the time, I was also doing uh, rip, uh, rubber containers to the rubber bed manufacturers and chiclet to the chewing gum. So it wasn't like something that I just thought up. It was kind of a seed was planted as a young man. What's, what's NSO? New Store Operations. I'm sorry? A new store operations. Oh, new store operations. Okay, okay. And when I was in the Cleveland and Midwest area, wow. we were opening up their concept crossover stores. Yeah, you've got so much stuff going on. You still left. You still got me thinking about a about a, a young guy living in a tent beside a field. Uh, that's. I mean, that's really getting into it. Uh, it is. I cooked all my food over the campfire. I had a composting toilet, a solar shower. I put up two 75-watt solar panels. I had uh, the basics. Uh, the girlfriend at the time needed a blow dryer. I created a wigwam inside because it got really <laughs> cold in the wintertime. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, there was a lot I had to learn from that, including lightning prevention. But yes. Oh, man, that's amazing. You know, they're saying right now that a lot of people are living in the big cities and that... Um, so I asked, I looked at an interview with a realtor and they were saying um, what people are wanting to do is like get out of the big cities and go get four or five acres and uh, grow their own crops and have some goats and some chickens and maybe a barn or, uh, you know, or a guest house 
and then and then hopefully they can still do what they're doing remotely without having to go into an office anymore but part of it is almost this kind of you know camping out and uh, here in California the area that's getting popular is out beyond Roseville and beyond Folsom kind of up towards the Sierras but all along that low area of the Sierras anybody's got five six acres or so that they can grow their own food have again usually they say goats and chickens and then they still have some something that they're earning a living on too off farm and often it's virtually and and i guess that's happening all over the country you were you were years ahead of your time yeah i guess so and i was lucky enough because the woman that i uh kind of opened my eyes to some other things at a, at a young age, kind of got me out of being a, a, a rascal, I guess I'll just say. Um, their family was some of the founders of the farm in Tennessee with Stephen Gaskins back in the day. I don't know if you've ever heard about the commune yeah. called the farm. Yeah. Uh-huh, sure. Yeah. Wow. Now somewhere in there, um, you, you went to college. Yep. After, uh, during, right after I got out of living in the tent, I transferred into going to school. And yeah. then from there, I, I didn't, I had, a, let's just say I don't have the best bedside manner because if people don't want to take what the information I have to share and the protocols, because I always approached healing after I got done with schooling as I'm not going to take money from you unless you get better. You're going to pay for your testing. You're going to pay for your supplements, but you'll pay me after three months and we'll, and you'll base me you'll pay me based on a on my grading card how well did i actually help you so you are a naturopathic doctor define that not everybody has a clear picture of what that means if you're a naturopathic doctor yeah so naturopathy just takes a complete different approach and looking at a whole systems approach so instead of just testing your blood the basic panel uh, listening to uh, specific situations or uh, before you're diagnosing somebody, you're looking at everything you possibly can analytically, or at least you should be. And that means fecal matter test, saliva test, urine test, hair test, blood test. Just like if you were going out and testing soil sure. and you just do a strong acid test, you're going to know about a fourth or a quarter less or so of what's really going on in your soil. That's one of the parts of the issues with agriculture. The yeah. same thing is for humans. It's a very minimal amount of testing. And then it's a kind of a shotgun approach. I, we focus on more of a systemic approach in building the patient up, rebuilding them and integrating them back into lifestyles and dietary decisions that are going to be, and depending on how far people go, emotional you know, because there's a lot of issues that are just stemming from people's self-doubt and emotion and their, their will has been disconnected from their kind of soul per se. Do they come usually uh, in response to a problem or are they being proactive? And, and Most people do come in response to a problem. I try to actually understand you for a three straight week period. I want to know everything about you when you eat, when you go to the bathroom, does it float? What's the pH of your urine? How much did you sleep last night? What were you watching on TV? Are you religious? Do you actually practice? Did you get in a fight that day? Did, where was there any itching on your body? Was your nose running? Did you have flatulence? Uh, did your teeth hurt more at a certain time of that day? Did you have any twitches in your, I wanna know 
everything, wringing everything that I can possibly know, I want to know because then it helps me to evaluate you as a whole microbiome, not just your internal microbiome, but the ecosphere of you, you, your whole being, and what are you subjecting yourself to? You know, and I would imagine that when you're looking at the whole thing they've been going through, that that now it's hard for people not to say I've just spent a year locked up. Uh, you know, and I would I would have, would imagine that has some Im- impact, some effect on you physiologically, of of not getting out, working at home, schooling your kids at home, wearing masks, whatever. That um, that there's so so much of the public that has added to something that's totally unusual to go through a year on, like we on, did in two. On some level and on other levels, I feel like it really brought people into a place of centering. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm definitely not happy about how many people lost uh, their, their, their livelihood or their homes or whatever's taken place. But I, and I'm not happy about how the administration literally like within weeks of calling this a pandemic gave Boeing $600 billion or whatever it was. And it's like, people are like, you gave me $1,200. How many months later? Thanks so much, you know? And Boeing even laid off all these people, which they said they wouldn't have to if they were given this free handout that they never had to pay back to the federal government. But the reality is, is that I think it's gotten a lot of people back to the brass tacks of making food at home connecting with their family, actually introspecting with them and potentially seeing, hey, maybe there's some dysfunction going on here. Maybe I need to connect with these people a little more. This is my family. We've lost that in this kind of nuclearized, go, go, go electronic world we live in. That's right. You know what? That makes so much sense. And you add to the whole thing of, I hear people are started gardening, which they hadn't done before. And I can't even count the number of people that have said their daily routine in, in, includes taking long walks in the woods and the parks and along the rivers and along the beach. And uh, it's become a part of their life. And um, that's right. Canning. Who, who, who would have thunk to take stock out and ball, ball jars when yeah. this all happened? It's the hardest thing in the world to find. So let's talk about food. And, yeah. uh, and when you look at food and choices that people make in, in food, how do you prioritize that? I mean, uh, what's the philosophy of the, of the steps that you, you encourage people to follow as far as selection of food and we're even going to back into growing food. Yeah. So, you know, to start, I I always speak about nutrient dense. I mean, to start, I speak about combination of food and combining food because that's one of the biggest issues. doesn't matter how good the food is or how well the supplements are made. uh, If you're combining them improperly, you're basically wasting your money and, and you're, you know, you're not getting the value out of the nutrition that you potentially could, mm-hmm. you know, um, everything creates that we eat regardless of what it is, uh, except for green leafy vegetables, um, is they creates racemized glycoproteins from your mouth to your anus. You have 4,000 square feet of mucosal lining, 4,000 square feet. Think about spreading all the mucus out that's inside of a cadaver, the thick layers of it. That's how much of it is. And the only thing that doesn't produce that is green leafy vegetables and fresh vegetables. Everything else we eat creates this type of a, a layer. 
We wonder like when we quit eating, how long it takes to not go to the bathroom. A lot of that is just putrefaction that's in the system. And that's be mainly because of poor uh, uh, combinations of food. And so food combining is mainly where I start. How are you eating? What are you eating? What are the size of the meals you're eating? Um, and what are you combining with it as far as drinking, desserts, and so forth? Second, I mainly go into nutrient density. You had a question? Oh, no. I, I was kind of an observation because I've done some, uh, we did some research before and we've looked at the combinations of foods and work with uh, tomatoes and broccoli, for example. Um, you have so much more lycopene produced, uh, you know, the antioxidant effect than, than either of them separately. They That's have right. to be in, in the same in the same meal, you know. And so I was just I was just scratching my head as you were saying that the combinations uh, uh, make so much sense. But I don't want to stop you on the road yeah, to so nutrient the, density. The, the, the brassicaceae's they have a, a strong sulfuric compound in them and a series of compounds that act as an adjuvant and help you to absorb other actives in the body. So the body is very excited when you eat brassicaceae's if you're not allergic to them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, then the next thing I go into is mainly how is the food being grown? Where are you sourcing it from? Uh, what's on the label? Do you know the farmer? Do you know the herdsman? Um, and then, you know, mainly focusing on nutrient density and how is the farm focused on nutrient density? What are the off-farm inputs that they're bringing onto their farm? And how are they measuring or quantifying uh, analyticals that show the farmer that they're on the right path to producing nutrient dense food. De define for me nutrient dense food. I mean, what if you're going to say this food is, is, is nutrient dense, what does that mean exactly? Um, I'll give you an overview kind of, you know, nutrient density is kind of most commonly defined as the levels of nutrients per unit calorie. For example, kale has on an average relatively high level of nutrients, but a low level of calories. By this metric, then, kale has a high nutrient density score. Conversely, rice has many more calories in it per unit nutrient, and so it would have a low uh, nutrient density score. Like, for instance, soda would be a food with very many calories and almost no nutrients, uh, and, and so it has an extremely low score. Mm -hmm. So according to that definition of nutrient density, and if you're using that, as an implicit assumption that all kale or rice is relatively nutritionally uniform. There is, however, like another definition of nutrient density, which is the beginning to be understood by the broader food movement, while not completely defined as of yet, when we talk about nutrient density, what we mean is how nutritious one bunch of kale is in relationship to another, or one bag of rice is to another. Right. And how do you determine those amounts of variation in the nutrition, the soil and health to create that nutrient density outcomes to be able to even have the predictive nutritional patterns in the produce using spectral data or metadata is really the ultimate and how we're trying to create through the Bionutrient Food Association, the library of crop nutrition and soil and crop management data. So if you were going to name the top, oh, I don't know, handful of nutrients, the, what, what are the first, you know, I don't know, four or five nutrients that are an example of if they're rich in a product that be, might be more nutrient dense? Uh, antioxidants, mm -hmm. macro and micronutrients, 
uh, polyphenols right out of the gate. Those would be the, the main ones. So you can, and you can, I mean, you can do that. I mean, somebody can actually take a food and see how many antioxidants in it, how many polyphenols um, are in it. And then if you equate that to rather than, rather than pounds, I think it was specific, it stuck in my mind too, that you, you said calories versus, you know, amount per pound necessarily, and that relationship to calories. So it's like, how much good stuff is there compared to, you know, this energy level that might be excessive? Uh, that is correct. And, you know, just like if you were to send off your soil to three different labs right now, you might get three different readings. If you were to send off your blood work to three different labs, you might get three different readings. Same thing goes for just about anything. So what we're doing at the Bionutrient Food Association and the Real Food uh, Campaign is we have a specific standard where we're using the exact same standards to test this, which is ultimately building towards us creating a handheld bionutrient meter. And it's focused around the antioxidants, the polyphenols, uh, and the juice bricks. Just going to be something like an app in your iPhone? or It's or? not. It's going to be a handheld tool. It's impossible to get the wave of, of, of spectrum right. of nanometers from an iPhone currently. Um, so, yeah. So, so, if I start at the farm level, if you, you know, let's put the market aside for a minute. But it seems to me like it, if you're growing food... It'd be really desirable to be able to produce food that is uh, nutrient dense, and and so if you're starting with uh, you know a garden or a farm, and you know you just got dirt, you just got this field. I mean, what what do you do uh, different to be able to enhance the the probability that you're really maximizing? the nutrient density of the crop that will ultimately come off that land? You know, uh, the relationship between farm practices and food quality, um, I personally would be looking at um, where are my local earthworm casting sources? Where are my local uh, 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 raw materials such as um, where, where are they doing mining for uh, basalt? Or is there any rock dust sources that are nearby? I always look at those first. Are there any dairies uh, that have the byproduct of whey that they need to get rid of? Um, chicken litter farms that are organic, that are not feeding uh, GMO feed to the chickens. Uh, cattle farmers that are not be, uh, being given dewormers um, and, you know, uh, that are grass fed, not finished grass, but actually grass fed um, on grass that's not sprayed with glyphosate because it concentrates in the ruminant. Um, those are kind of the first things. And then I look at being able to create, because anybody can create a sourdough culture and keep it in the fridge and keep it healthy. Well, you can, anybody can grow a kombucha mushroom and have kombucha as a ferment. Well, you can do the same thing with creating bokashi and creating effective micronutrient fermentations that you just feed with the sugar source on your, on your farm. And those are great to be able to create biological brews as an additive because they have a tendency, like you said, the broccoli helps with the lycopene uptake. Well, when you add effective micronutrients to anything that you're mixing as a tea, it acts as an adjuvant and as a delivery mechanism because it excites the plants because of the carbohydrate source, as well as the enzyme keeps kind of opening up and delivering whatever those nutrients are. Um, so those are the first thing, rock dust is essential. And then looking at a product like C90 from the Sea of Cortez, 
that's a be all give all, uh, you know, pound per hundred square feet. And you're guaranteed to be amplifying the overall mineral uptake every year. You apply about a pound per hundred square feet of the C90, the literal salt itself from the Sea of Cortez. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that you mentioned too that there's a bionutrient food organization. Uh, that, um, now, does it is that an organization that has information on how to how to pursue some of this, or is there another it organization? Does. Okay. It does. I would highly suggest anybody going and becoming a member of the Real Food Campaign and the Bionutrient Food Association. Uh, Dan Kittredge, who's the executive director currently, there's an ongoing course. We typically meet every year in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. This is our 10th annual year, and due to COVID, we couldn't meet. So all the farming practices and amendments and kind of that uh, an uh, uh, analysis and processes of going into determining what is actually that you need to shift as a place-based scenario, all of that information, including sample collection surveys, how to support people in taking their soil test, and then what to apply. And is no-till, you know, does that positively affect antioxidants? Does this do this? All of the inconsistencies, we're analyzing that and we share all of this data open source to our members. And soilandnutrition.org is a great place to go to right now. And you can sign up and whatever, uh, whatever courses have already been given, all the recordings are available. We meet every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern time on a live feed for an hour and a half. And all the topics that we're discussing, including the methodologies, are are shown there. Can I come? Absolutely. Well, um, and so when you said the soilandnutrition.org, um, does that cover uh, the organizations then? Is that that website the main? main? Uh, that, that is our conference, annual conference website. Okay. You will see some information about the organization. Um, I, I will say we are not overly proud as an organization of our website, the current state where bionutrient.org is. There's a lot more behind the scenes than what we actually convey, but a lot of our messaging is still very clear and up to date. We're just modernizing it right now, but soilandnutrition.org is a little bit more of a modern page, but that's mainly to bring you into our conference that's going on right now. I think I heard you mention biochar a while back. Um, could you explain what biochar is and do, does it uh, have a, a role to play in, in building up soils? Yeah, um, biochar, you know, I, I'm not going to claim to be a specialist on biochar. I've worked with some py pyrolysis machines on a variety of different levels, uh, from bamboo to coconut husks to uh, corn crops to softwoods. Um, I've even seen people, unfortunately, make it out of tires. Uh, biochar is something that is a great sponge and a great uh, source of carbon that acts as a sponge for anything that you're providing to the plant, as well as I always say that it almost acts like a primordial reef. If you think it like a volcano, for instance, when it goes off, that's pumice that comes from it. That's all biochar, okay? Um, and pumice and biochar together are a really great uh, medium to replace vermiculite and perlite, which are not needed, um, and to also um, balance the pH and create kind of, a, when I say a reef, 
any of the microbial life that is in the soil that that you've added or that is in that you that you're applying will naturally uh, multiply uh, ten to a hundred times over in the biochar itself. So it contains a lot of those microorganisms in all of the cavities and crevices. And then the exchange to the plant, one, you sequestered carbon, it slowly dissolves into the soil, supporting the whole carbon cycle. And it does actually enhance uh, the, the viability of, of um, the cationic exchange uh, with the soil. So biochar can be created from uh, like tree limbs and woods and scraps. It can be created from anything. Yeah. And and then, but it's, it's um, whereas some of that product, if you just turned it into charcoal, you know, but this is, it's almost, there's a, there's a moisture, there's a compression, something in the process that it doesn't like burn up. It actually becomes this sponge. Like you were That's saying. Right. And they take the volatile organic materials and compounds and re usually re redirect them into reverse evaporative cooling methodologies for like swamp coolers and or uh, electricity of some sort. Boy, there's a, a lot here. So if we are standing out, we're outstanding in our field, the old pun, and, and looking at we can make it better. We can do things to this soil to build it. And that gets into the words regenerative, I suppose now. And um, biodynamic. And yeah. biodynamic. And we can do that. And we, as a result of those efforts, um, we will end up having more nuclear, or, I'm sorry, nuclear, yeah. <laughs> nutrient, that's something else. I have that on my mind too. That's another podcast. But nutrient-dense uh, foods. But you've got them and you can eat them and be healthier yourself. But yeah. then the trick is, I think for a lot of people, is that they have to make a living and they have to, as a result of doing these things right, would like to figure out how they could market it to somebody that cares and, and maybe make a living of doing this improvement to the foods and to their farming practices. Got any advice for them on that? That's That seems like that might be a stumbling block. Of how many people are buying plastic bottles of supplements? Although I prescribe them to people and most of them are food state or whole herb extracts. Yeah. Unless you have some serious clinical issues and you need some isolates. What are people looking for? Antioxidants, polyphenols, uh, right. calcium, magnesium, potassium, right. iron and zinc. What have we heard about during COVID? Boost your health. Most of those things were included in that. Yeah. If you produce more nutrient-dense food, your farmer becomes your pharmacy with an F, not a PH. And so I, you start I, to look. Oh, I think you're, you're absolutely, that makes so much sense. But the, of course, the trick is, can you, to try to scale it, and I can see how an individual farmer could do this and could have that message and it can be a farmer's market, a CSA, direct sales to consumers. It's a little trickier to try to take that product into a, a retail. Uh, restaurants might be easier. And, it's not. So that's where the meter is going to come into play. So by the end of this year, we should have our, our phase two meter out. And it will further advance and continue to cycle like iPhones too until we get it to where we want it to be. But we need to get something out. We've been working on this. And as a nonprofit, it's not like we have a massive endowment that's helping us to do this. We've literally been 
uh, bringing brilliant minds in that want to volunteer their time and working through all the semantics and the re-engineering and the, the analysis of all this food and these labs that we've been setting up, we will have a tool out where you'll actually be able to show that you're a part of this group and that you're testing your food and that, look, I'm, I'm going to test everything you've got in your freezer right now at a chef, or I'm going to test everything you have in the produce section right now. Any produce manager would want to know that to be able to market something that's unique. Like this is truly regenerative because, and this is a big part that people don't remember. Even if you didn't do everything regenerative on site with your fuel consumption and whatever you're doing, if a consumer is eating food that has no nutrients in it, it's truly not regenerative because how is that, how is that uh, feeding the life cycle of humanity? That's one big part. There's many parts to the word regenerative. But one key element for people that are selling it, meaning the chef or the, the, the actual grocer, is the whole element behind that specific piece. That I'm providing sense. you food that has more nutrient value consistently. So when you buy this head of lettuce for me at a 10 cent premium or whatever it might be, you're actually getting a value for that exchange. You know, one of the things that makes me think of is uh, how difficult it's, it's been to talk about regenerative. Uh, but in a way, this is a shortcut, because if you can show that the food is nutrient dense, it almost goes without saying that it was produced in an appropriate way. I mean, you know, you you don't necessarily first have to walk walk somebody through every step of the production. But if you... Uh, if you know the story of this nutrient-dense foods that you're consuming or buying in a package, then uh, from what you're saying, it almost is, um, sure, it was it was grown right. You know, you can make some assumptions just from looking at the at the food. Is, is that, am I exaggerating? No, you're not. And that's, that's exactly where we're hoping to go is to bring that value metric to the farmer and bring the awareness to the consumer I mean, remember when organic came around, there was a lot of people that were hostile against the whole concept of organic. I've mm -hmm. seen, talked to so many scientists that they were like, look, all the chemicals we put into our hydroponic or fertilizers, it's organic chemistry. So isn't that by default organic? Now that we're getting into nutrient density, it's creating similar to what like you saw in Kiss the Ground and other films that are out there. It's creating a metric and a pathway for uh, consumers and, and farmers and the marketplace to connect around a new meme and hopefully suss it out over the next seven to 10 years and get it really well-defined. You know, this is really a great conversation. I, I appreciate this. And, and uh, some light bulbs are going off for me as we talk. And I think we kind of keep building up, building up, building up and getting to the point that I think a lot of consumers and restaurants and others are, you know, I can see them going through the same process because you're getting getting the word out. So I, um, I, I appreciate your taking the time to be on Farm to Table Talk. And I just want to wrap up. Um, if... What's the most important takeaway that you, you want to see? Uh, somebody, um, if you want them to come to feel how things could be better, or maybe what even is making you optimistic of feeling like we may be going the right direction, what's, what would you like to have a, a listener think about? Hmm. 
You know, it's it's interesting when you think about the concept of farming. It's a very Newtonian approach, and it seeks this conceptual understanding. And one of the ways that I've learned in farming in the past, it's called a, a biodynamic, which is more of a Gertian approach, and it seeks insight into the archetypal aspect of the plant. And when we think about the cosmic rhythms, you know, connecting the Earth to the stars, you think about the farmer's almanac. You think about all of these aspects that are related to what are the essential principles of farming in a way that's going to produce uh, nutrient dense food and a better future for humanity. And it really is this, like, you know, the human agent, the farmer is a human agent of creative thinking and basically acting at, in these endeavors with all the varied forces that they're dealing with, with nature. Uh, with where the seeds are coming from, with where their raw materials are coming from. But ultimately, in, at the end of the day, they're trying to supply livelihood for their family, livelihood for their consumers, and a future, uh, in, in, in futures, basically, they're betting on that. And the full potential of this is all surrounded, and a lot of us have forgotten this, in taste, nutrition, the beauty or presence of your food, and the fragrance. And I really want people to really, like, start to drop into the whole aspect of like the biosphere that they live in, the ecosphere, the bioculturalism, thinking about not just their farm as a nuclear or the consumer as a nuclear, but us as a whole and the life cycle of everything that we put into that. I think it's really essential. And, you know, behind all, all matter and forces is the activity of spirit. And regardless of what religion you are, to me, what better thing that you can possibly do than do the right thing and connect to the meaning of really where the root of all of this came from, where the root of all these genetics came from, and ultimately, what is the meme? What is that calling out that everyone's calling for in this world right now is to find something to take care of degenerative diseases, prolong life, quality of life and just to enhance our futures. We want to create a place that's a better world to bring children into and the children that have already been brought into this world and to create some type of a socioeconomic impact all at the same time so that we're rising all ships together and supporting as many community organizations and as many people that are truly doing the work in a regional fashion. Chris, that's a good place to wrap up. That's a lot to think about. And I'm hoping this is one of those podcasts that people might want to listen to a couple of times because you had so many words of wisdom here. And and I, again, my guest is Dr. Christopher Dougherty, and, and we've been having a great conversation. Chris, I want to give you another opportunity to direct people to any website or, or where they may be able to follow uh, some of these things that, that you talk about and follow you yourself. Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn at Dr. Christopher Dougherty. Um, there's the realfoodcampaign.org. There's the bionutrient.org. That's the Real Food Campaign and the Bionutrient Food Association. Our annual conference is at soilandnutrition.org. And then there's another great group that we work called agrowingculture.org. Wow. And so... Anytime anybody has any questions or if you'd like to circle back for a conversation, you just let me know, Roger. 
I'm going to. I love this conversation. Uh, Chris, thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thank you. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you like what you hear, go to farmtotabletalk.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter or go to iTunes to subscribe and give us a review and a rating. Thanks for listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. <laughs>